0: Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history. Brought to you by the State Historian at UConn Hartford and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. On this episode of Grading the Nutmeg, Natalie Ballinger of the Connecticut Historical Society, examines the real stories behind the iconic Rosie the Riveter. It's a riveting story from World War II, coming up right now on Grating the Nutmeg. Long, where the
1: who was Rosie the Riveter? That's a more complicated question than it might seem on the surface. On the one hand, the name refers to the millions of real women who worked for victory during World War II. On the other, it also refers to an icon, an image that appeared in popular culture in the 1940s that was used to encourage American women to take on war work. The origins of this icon are a bit more complicated than I initially thought. It turns out that there were lots of real life models for the various manifestations of cultural Rosies that appeared in the 1940s. In this episode, I'll speak to Gretchen Caulfield, president of the National Rosie the Riveter Association, to find out about the experiences of women who worked for victory. But first, I'll take a brief detour to sketch out the tangled history of the iconic Rosie and the individuals who inspired her. A bit of myth-busting is in order. A lot of Americans tend to think of World War II as the time when American women finally broke out of the home and began to work. That's not completely accurate. In 1940, a quarter of American women worked for wages, and they made up a quarter of the paid labor force. The number did increase dramatically during the war. Five million new female workers entered the workforce, raising the percentage of working women to 37%. What was different about wartime employment was that older married women made up the largest proportion of these new workers, and that women were breaking into better paid, traditionally male jobs in heavy industry. The government invested in a propaganda campaign that sought to overturn traditional gender norms and encourage women to take on these jobs. Ads featuring pretty women in lipstick, building airplanes, and operating drill presses were everywhere, and the government got an assist from popular culture. The first appearance of the popular Rosie icon was in song. A tune called Rosie the Riveter came out in 1942. The songwriters Red Evans and John Jacob Loeb were inspired by a newspaper article about a woman working in the Vaught plant in Stratford, Connecticut, producing Corsair aircraft. Rosalind Palmer was a wealthy young woman who'd passed up the chance to go to college to take a war job. Later, under her married name, Rosalind P. Walter, she'd become a major benefactor of PBS. The song inspired Norman Rockwell to create an image of Rosie, which was published on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post on May 29, 1943. Holding a riveting gun and a lunchbox labeled Rosie on her lap, Rockwell's Rosie crushes a copy of Mein Kampf underfoot. She's got muscular arms and clutches a sandwich. The model for this version of Rosie was Vermont woman Mary Doyle Keefe, though Rockwell considerably beefed up her petite frame. I'm willing to bet that when you hear Rosie the Riveter, though, what leaps first to mind isn't the song or the Rockwell poster, but something else. It's an image with a yellow background, a woman in blue flexing her bicep, sporting a red polka-dotted headscarf. Above her head, large text reads, we can do it. That image is ubiquitous now, but it wasn't widely seen during the war. It was created by artist J. Howard Miller for Westinghouse Electric Corp and it displayed in their factories for just a couple of weeks in 1943. It wasn't rediscovered until the 1980s and it became a symbol of the new feminist movement. It also became associated with Rosie the Riveter, even though the original wasn't explicitly linked to the mythic character of the song or the Rockwell drawing. Miller probably based his drawing on a photo of a war worker and the identity of the woman in that photo has been disputed over the years. Recent evidence says that it was Naomi Parker Fraley of California. So much for the myth. What about the reality? Let's set aside the cheery music, the polka dots, and the lipstick, and find out what it was like to be a working woman during the war. To find out, I spoke to Gretchen Caulfield, president of the National Rosie the Riveter Association. Hi Gretchen, welcome.
2: Hi Natalie, it's nice to be here.
1: You are the national president of the American Rosie the Riveter Association. Can you tell me a little bit about what that organization is and what you do?
2: Yes. First of all, it was founded by a World War II Rosie, who was a riveter. Um, She riveted the B-29 bombers in Birmingham, Alabama, for Parsons Modification Center. And she started the organization in 1998 to honor the women uh, who worked on the home front during World War II. She is 98 years old right now. And um, just to clarify what a Rosie is, when we're referring to Rosie the Riveters, we're referring to women who worked and volunteered on the home front. So it's it's not exclusive to Riveters. It includes welders, women who worked on the assembly line, um, women who were parachute folders, farm work, women who were lumberjacks, crane operators. So it's, it's, it's a variety of jobs. And the purpose of the organization is to uh, recognize and preserve the legacy and the history of the women who worked and volunteered on the home front. It's an all volunteer nonprofit organization. So we're all 100% volunteers who are in the organization. And it consists of not only the World War II Rosies, but their descendants, men and women as well and uh, members can also be friends. So even if you don't have a Rosie in the organization, you can join. A big part of what we do is collect the research and the history from the Rosies, their work during World War II. Over six million women worked on the home front during World War II, and there's no unifying record. There's no record that documents all of the six million women. Some worked for a few weeks, some worked throughout the entire war, And our job and our commitment is to get those details and that history and record it, um, document it for future generations. Because once those details are gone and even the Rosies or the the descendants of the Rosies no longer know this information, the history is gone. So we keep an archive and we also do national publications of biographies of the World War II Rosies. We also have chapters and the chapters um, are a big part of what we do nationally because they can reach out to the historical societies in their areas, the museums. Uh, They can bring Rosie's into educational um, organizations and in the schools to talk to students about what they did during World War II. We can also help the uh, museums and historical societies with artifacts and displays. And our Rosies have been in parades, and they have been in large celebrations, and so it uh, depends on what type of events each chapter does. It's up to them and what, what their goals are, but we reach out all over the country. Part of this quest to document the history
1: of the Rosie's, you published a book, Connecticut's Rosie the Riveters, pulling together on the home front during World War II. And the book is a collection of interviews of oral histories uh, with uh, women who served on the home front and also in some cases, their um, family members who are, who are adding to these, to these stories. In talking to these various Rosie's and their families, what were some common themes or common
2: experiences that you found A common theme that you'll find from the Rosies is that they will say that they wanted to do their part for the war effort. Uh, The the country's freedom and the world's freedom was at stake. And so many of them had brothers, neighbors, boyfriends who went into the war and were deployed and they wanted to do what they could to win the war and bring the boys home. And that's a common theme that you'll find from many of the Rosies. Um, they'll, They'll look back later and say, now, wow, look what I did. But their motivation was to win the war and bring the boys home.
1: So what you're describing is often Rosie the Riveters are depicted as sort of people who were Influenced by patriotism, but what you're describing is a much more personal link. It's not simply I want to do this work to support my country. In many instances, it seems like the people around me, the men around me are doing their part, and I want to do my part to support those people that I love who are involved in the war effort. I mean, it's a similar motivation, but there is, there's this fine distinction between I simply turned up at the plant because I love America versus I turned up, I went, war- I went to work at the plant because there are people all around me who are being asked to sacrifice and I'm going to do the same thing.
2: Well, it's part of patriotism as well. It definitely was patriotism. The government was putting out advertisements at the time encouraging women to work and it was considered their patriotic duty to come in. However, when we do talk to Rosie's and they're talking on a personal level, many of them will talk about their family members or loved ones who went to the war and they were motivated as well to do their part. There are also, in Connecticut, the pay was very high. So you're talking about families who were coming through, went through the depression and Connecticut had very high paying jobs. And when, when women were recruited, which places like Chan's Vaught and the Electric Boat Company were recruiting women, Chan's Vaught went as far as Oklahoma, as far as we've been able to research to bring women over to Connecticut to fill the, the jobs that they needed uh, when men were being deployed and they needed to continue the war production continue with their government government contracts and their uh, promises to produce. And the women were able to double their salaries, if not more, when they came to Connecticut. We're talking about patriotism, doing their duty, um, stepping up for the country, filling a role f- that men had that were no, were no longer filled because the men were leaving and being drafted. And many of them would say, I wanted to do the best job I could working. So my grandmother, for instance, uh, this is how I got involved in the American Rosie the Riveter Association. My grandmother worked for Chance Vought building uh, the Corsair airplane during World War II. And she was married. She had a child already, a toddler, who was actually my mother. And she heard an ad on the radio. Now, how do you go to work when you're in the 1940s, and you have a child that you're raising. Um, her husband was working in the chemistry division, so he was working at home on the home front, and my great-grandmother said to my grandmother, Mary, why don't you go work for the war effort? I'll watch Carol, who was my who was my mother. So she was able to get the daycare that she needed to go work for the war effort, and she would tell me she wanted to do the best job she could. Every, every landing gear that she was working on, on that Corsair, she knew that somebody was flying it. And um, the work ethic was impeccable with many of these women. They, they talk about doing the best job that they can because they knew that their brothers and their boyfriends and their neighbors would be using the ammunition, the guns, the tanks, the boats, the ships, everything that they were making.
1: So in your story, it's not just your grandmother who's stepping in to work in the war effort. It's also your great grandmother who's doing her part by providing an essential service, which is childcare, in order to free up a war worker. So um, it's kind of it, it, it kind of reminds you that you know even behind every. Um, Rosie the Riveter, who are these today these iconic figures because they're taking on traditionally male jobs. There are also women who are taking on less glamorous or or less, I I guess, iconic um, roles that are providing um, services that help the war
2: effort. Yes, and that's what we call volunteer Rosies. So the volunteer Rosies would be collecting essential war materials, scrap drives, uh, collecting fat, providing the daycare so that the Rosies could go to work, growing the Victory Gardens. The women who weren't working on the home front are also recognized as their work volunteering for the home front and providing those services and knitting, uh, knitting hats for the military, sewing. There were many jobs that they did behind the scenes. So we recognize those women as well.
1: It's not uncommon for women's work to be sort of thought of as not work because it's not paid. But in fact, all of those things you talk about, right, they are volunteer. That doesn't mean the labor involved wasn't arduous or time consuming. It's just they're taking part in things that are often labeled and pushed off to the side as merely women's work or merely housework. It's not paid, so it's not seen as work.
2: That's right. So it's very important to recognize the women and who were volunteering and also in the book from doing research about one Rosie, I found out that one of the Rosie's sisters was doing essential work such as that. She was too young to work in a factory and she was collecting the milkweed pods with her brother, her younger brother, which were also essential for flotation so if you look at the book, you'll, you'll read the history of the milkweed pods and how important they were for the war effort. And that's just another example of what women were doing and what children were doing to help with the war effort, selling stamps in the town green for the war bonds, all sorts of activities that were important.
1: Can you tell us about a couple of the stories in your book that really stand out to you?
2: Well, I have to say, I love all the stories in the book. Every Rosie that I've interviewed or family member that I have spoken with provided unique details about their work and their contribution. However, I understand what you're saying about singling out a few of the Rosies. And I think I can do that by speaking about Connecticut's historic contributions and how some of these women fit into history in the making during World War II. Um, The first person I think I'd like to talk about would be Adeline Gray. And she was the first person ever to human test a nylon parachute. What makes her so interesting is that Adeline, she grew up in Oxford, Connecticut, and she was a daredevil by nature. When she was in high school, before the war, air shows were very popular, and she was just amazed by the people jumping out of the airplanes. So she got her pilot's license, and um, this is a collection of interviews directly from Adeline Gray. She passed away in the early 70s. Adeline, um, in 1939, at 21 years of age, was the only licensed woman parachute jumper in New England. And by 24 years of age, she made 33 jumps and was paid between $30 and $100, depending on how dangerous her jump was during the air show. By the time the war started, the air shows came to a halt because it was was considered an excessive thing to do, air shows, when we have a war going on. However, Adeline knew how to fold parachutes because she folded her own parachutes when she would jump during the air shows. And she was working for the Pioneer Parachute Company during the war then, folding parachutes. When the Japanese took over the silk supply, they cut off the silk supply from the United States. The United States needed to come up with another material to use for their parachutes because previously parachutes were made out of silk. So when DuPont created nylon and exhibited it for nylons in the, in the late 1930s, this was an idea then that would be used for parachutes. The army and the military were testing the nylon parachutes with dead weight. Uh, they did many tests, but they needed somebody to actually step up and test this parachute. Adeline Gray stepped up immediately and was interested in doing this test. She explained, and this is a quote, that her first par- the first parachute made out of nylon was put together in our plant. This was the Pioneer Parachute Company. Since I had been jumping for quite a while by that time, I volunteered to do the job. The day I went up for the test, I was really scared because I knew how much depended on the success of that parachute jump. At any rate, we went up 2,000 feet and after I had said a short prayer, I jumped out. After the chute opened, I just said over and over again to myself, it works, it works. This was something that is not only Connecticut history, but this is history. She did something for the country, for the military, to prove that it was effective, to prove that the nylon parachute was safe for the military. She also described her first jump ever. She wasn't trained like the military were. She just jumped out of a par- she jumped out of an airplane. So when she did her very first jump ever, she said, actually, I never had any training. That is not the special training the army flyers get nowadays. They just took me up in a plane at an altitude of 2000 feet and told me to jump. I mean, that's how she learned how to jump out of an airplane. She just did it.
1: <laughs> her story about not having any real training in jumping out of an airplane is interesting to me because it seems to be a common theme amongst rosies and really a whole generation of people during the war who are suddenly forced to learn new skills quickly i've for example read stories of rosies working in heavy industry who you know had always believed and sort of lived in a world where these heavy industrial jobs were ones that required years of apprenticeship to learn properly and yet these women find themselves sort of required to learn how to do the job well in a very short amount of time.
2: Yes, that's uh, that's true. They did have some training, riveting welding. They went to some training workshops and training facilities. So it could be anywhere from a few weeks to a couple of months. Something that stuck out to me when I was reading and researching and speaking to some Rosie's was that sometimes in some of these training facilities, they were, and it's not always, but some of them would mention they were required to purchase their toolbox in order to go to their training. And when you're talking about a high school graduate during the depression who has no money, you think, wow, I mean, that's amazing. One Rosie mentioned she was just out of high school. She wanted to work for the war effort And her toolbox was going to cost $25, and she didn't have any money. And so her sister agreed to pawn her watch in order for her to purchase the $25 toolbox to then go to the training to learn how to weld and rivet. Some of the other factories would train the the Rosies for free. They would provide the equipment, and Chance Vought, at one point, also sent women to LaGuardia Airfield to train them in engineering, drafting, and to educate them about airplanes. And they went for free. They had their room and board paid for, and they received $140 a month stipend. So the variety of how they trained the Rosies is all over the board.
3: More with my guests after this message. Hi, it's Mary Donahue here, Assistant Publisher of Connecticut Explored. In December of 2015, listeners heard that music for the first time when our podcast, Grading the Nutmeg, launched. As Elizabeth Norman, Publisher of Connecticut Explored, told listeners in that first episode, We are all about storytelling. We want to do that storytelling on multiple platforms. We want to hear it. We want to read it. We want to live it. We want to be out there in the field with it, and we want to be immersed in it. And that's been our goal for 104 episodes. Today I'm asking you to share your thoughts on our podcast and on the magazine Connecticut Explored by taking a 10-minute survey. You'll find a link to the survey on ctexplore.org. Go ahead, tell us what you think about how we bring you Connecticut history, one good story after another. We look forward to your feedback. It must have been really remarkable, and I think this is
1: a context that we often, um, often in sort of American public history, the Great Depression and World War II are thought of as two separate things, you know, but for the people, you know, these, this generation that fought the war, these are people who grew up in the Great Depression at a time when jobs were scarce, and to suddenly be in a position where workers were precious, where workers were courted, where workers were offered in many cases, as you mentioned, free training or the opportunities to learn a, a, a skill. Or craft, um, it just must have been head spinning. It's very hard to imagine living through a time when when the value of workers shifts so quickly. From there's too many of you to we need everyone we can get.
2: Yes, um, the the companies would be recruiting to the going to the high schools and recruiting, offering welding training and other types of training and if they passed then they could move on to some of these jobs and so you're absolutely right and the family members the women graduating from high school were also under the pressure of helping to support their families we have some stories where you know it's very tragic that a, a parent died during the depression and and the families were really struggling and now the rosies were having some job opportunities. They were having to go across state lines to another location. They're just out of high school. They've never been away from home before. They take these job opportunities. Uh, They're good paying jobs, more money than they had seen before, and they have to find a place to live. Sometimes they would go with their sisters or friends and they would find a room in a rooming house And in order to save money, they would get one single bed for the two of them, and they would creatively take opposite shifts so that one would sleep when one would work, then the other one would go to work and the other one would use their bed to sleep. And it would help them save money and also send money home. You know, rooming was also tough in some of the areas, especially in Hartford, where they would break down apartments into smaller rooms to rent out because you're getting a flood of people from out of state And coming into the region, they want to get their jobs, there are job opportunities, but they needed a place to stay. You've talked about some of the difficulties that
1: women faced in taking on war work, especially as you mentioned women, uh, the young women who were leaving home for the first time, the women who had to find accommodations. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges for another group of women, women who were perhaps older, who were married, who had especially children at home?
2: Yes, that, that brought in on another um, set of responsibilities because the women were working at home at the time, raising their children. And then when they decided to start working for the war effort, that was an additional responsibility to what they already had. And daycare and childcare wasn't available like it is now. So there, there wasn't the extensive opportunities of finding a place for your child to be while you were working a shift. And many of these women could be taking two hour bus rides to work and two hour bus rides home. So they would be gone for 12 hours a day. You'll find that many women solve these problems or these challenges by having either a relative watch their children, either um, a neighbor, sometimes they would share the, the child care based on their shifts, And other times, one creative way that uh, a family dealt with a very large family when a Rosie had to work was that the husband who was doing war work as well, he would work one shift and the wife would work the other shift. And in between, while one was coming and one was going, the older child would make the dinner and watch the children in between because there was a little bit of overlap. So they had to come up with creative ways to run their families as well as take on these war jobs and it was really up to the rosies to try to figure this out because that was their full-time job and now they're taking on another full-time job and it was uh it was difficult
1: and i know there were some scattered attempts by the uh, federal government to you know there was a recognition during the war that childcare was a problem but there were some du- there were some government sponsored daycares created during the time, but there just wasn't nearly there weren't nearly enough to fill the need.
2: Yes, and and nationally they they had daycare as well. The Daughters of the American Revolution opened up their basement in Washington D.C. for a daycare so that to encourage women to work during the war effort. So there were. There were options. It was just a little bit harder than, um, let's just say there were less options than there are now. I wanted to just mention one thing about the book It has my name on the front, but it is and was made in a 100% volunteer effort, everything from people contributing the stories to me putting them together and organizing them, it was all 100% volunteer. And so the the proceeds go towards funding Rosie the Riveter exhibits in Connecticut.
1: And where can people find that book?
2: That would be on our state chapter website, which is CT, like the abbreviation for Connecticut, rosies, R-O-S-I-E-S, .org. Gretchen, how do you think the
1: Rosies understood their legacy?
2: What I'd like to say about that, a couple of things. One is the misconception that the women were there to prove a point that they could do a man's job. And that wasn't the intention when the women went to go to work. They were put into those positions. And the, the amazing part of Rosies is that they were doing jobs that were never regularly done by women, so not in, that, not in that quantity. They knew they were going in to win the war, and so it was pretty much, not by all of them, but pretty much understood that it was a temporary situation, that they were there to produce for the war effort. Once the war ended, um, it wasn't really a surprise that many of them were relieved of their positions, though not all of them were, for instance, uh, one of our Rosie's Pat Handy Swenson, she was a flight test observer at Sikorsky and what well, was Vought Sikorsky at the time. And she, w- her job was to test the vibrations and record all of the information as Sikorsky was developing his R-4 and R-5 helicopter. When the war was over, she continued working. This was this was something they were still developing, the helicopter, she was still working, and she was encouraged and got her, her pilot's license as a helicopter pilot with Sikorsky. So she was the first woman helicopter pilot with Sikorsky and one of the first to solo in a helicopter nationwide. Some of the engineers who were women, they kept their jobs as well at Chans Vought So there is a misconception that every woman was laid off after the war and everybody was very upset. Some women were upset that they lost their jobs, some single women especially, who would have been happy continuing working and making the money they were and having these wonderful positions that they trained for. However, a lot of them, if you speak to them, knew that the war was over and they wanted to start and really begin their lives with husbands, boyfriends that were coming back, and they were looking forward to the next chapter of their lives. And yes, many women did continue to work. Some opened restaurants, some went to college. Some, I spoke with a Rosie recently who was trained with Chans uh, and was working in the engineering department drafting during World War II. And she went on to be the first graduating class as an industrial engineer at her university. So they went on and did things and continued sometimes with their professions. And just like we can't lump everybody together and everybody's thoughts together, people have different opinions and their goals were different. Their situation in their lives were different. So I guess that's one myth is that we can just clump Rosie's together and, and, and make an overall blanket statement about them. Um, I wanted to bring up one more thing, and that's what the Rosies brought to the table when they came to work. Some of them were not trained, uh, like in the tech schools, for the riveting and and the, the welding. And when they would come to the factories looking for a job, there would be somebody who would interview them and find out what kind of skills they already had. So some of these home skills, or as you would say, housewife skills that they had such as sewing. Um, some were seamstresses, some, some sewed out of their houses just for their children's clothes, others were, were doing it as a job. Um, they had fine motor skills, they were small, they were short, they were tiny. They could fit into the small parts of the airplanes to do the riveting that men couldn't fit into. Their fine motor skills made them great electricians for the very fine wiring that they needed to have done. The seamstresses made wonderful materials. I guess it would be like the, 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 not the drafting area, let me think. It would be the material section where they would lay out patterns. So the pattern laying out, they would do that with material and it was the same thing with the materials for the airplanes. So they would know how to flip a shape and make sure that they weren't wasting materials. So they could bring some of these things that they already knew, and it could be applied then to the factory work. Um, They also had opportunities to go from a typist to a secretary. They were encouraged to go to night school to step up to the next level in secretarial work. And the women who were working as clerks and secretaries they're also Rosie's. They were contributing, uh, bringing blueprints places, transporting important materials um, to the assembly lines because some of these factories were enormous and they needed the couriers to do this. So everybody's job was important, but they, they were able to bring some of their their stature, of uh, their small stature and their petite size to, to, war, uh, to war jobs and be able to fit right in
1: it's interesting to see america suddenly wake up to the idea that oh wait the work and the work that women do for their families is work and it it's skilled and it requires mental and physical and motor training and oh right now it's valuable and uh and it gets funny to me like we still don't i, I think that's something we we struggle with today is valuing what what women and now increasingly some men like do at home and we don't consider it work. It's it's fascinating to me because it's all labor. The Rosie the Riveter image, from what I can find out, doesn't really start to become an icon till much later. That it's you know in the um with the with the women's liberation movement. Women are starting to look back at the past, that first generation of women's lib. They're looking at perhaps their moms for role models. And they're finding this time when women were required to do the same types of work as men and were proved themselves to be flexible and intelligent and to have what it took to compete in a quote unquote man's world. And they're finding that as inspirational. It's much later in the 1980s when, for example, the iconic Rosie the Riveter poster with the yellow background and the red uh, headscarf, polka dot headscarf, suddenly becomes the symbol. And so it's interesting to me that, you know, again, that generation that did this themselves in the 50s and 60s weren't sitting around looking at themselves as icons, they just did what they had to do. But later on history says, no, what you did was really extraordinary.
2: And, and they'll look back as well. Uh, we, had, we had a Corsair over Connecticut in the early 2000s and another common thread was the Rosies who worked on those Corsairs would look up and see them fly over. Some of them never saw a Corsair fully built. They were on the assembly line, but they never saw the Corsair actually come out. So they never saw one that flew. And they would say, wow, I did that. So they're reflecting on it after the fact, like realizing how important their job was and what they were doing. And it, it just always gives me chills really when I, when I hear a Rosie look back. Cause I always ask them, what would you like to tell somebody now about work or life during World War II? What they say is, wow, I I look back now and this is what I did. And it's a nice reflective thought as well as telling people we were very patriotic and we wanted to step up.
0: Thanks for listening. The Connecticut Historical Society is marking the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II with a pair of exhibits Manufacturing Victory, the Arsenal of Democracy is a traveling exhibit from the National World War II Museum. Fighting on the Homefront, Propaganda Posters of World War II is a traveling show from the Detroit Historical Society. Both are on view at the Connecticut Historical Society until January 2nd, 2021. To learn more about the National Rosie the Riveter Association, go to rosytheriveter.net. This is Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time for another episode of Grating the Nutmeg.